Okay, good morning. We are going to do our second session on, on the Sabbath, on our series on the Sabbath. Uh, and I have asked uh, Dan Kido uh, to lead us in prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, we're very grateful for another Sabbath today. We look forward to this opportunity to learn about the variety of meanings that you would have us uh, appreciate. And uh, we ask you to help make our minds receptive. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I would also like to acknowledge a, a visitor, I hope he doesn't mind, Dr. Robert Johnston at the, and his wife from Andrews University. Uh, he has, uh, <coughs> has been and still is one of the leading New Testament uh, scholars in the Adventist Church and, and an expert on, on early Christianity, on, on the transition between the sort of the intertestamental and New Testament uh, times. So uh, it's a real honor to have you here. So we, ha we have benefited, and I have drawn in the Sabbath book, I have drawn uh, extensively on, on uh, some of the things that he has written about, uh, Dr. Johnston has written about in, in, uh, in, his, in his work earlier. Today, our text is Genesis, uh, and we are looking at the uh, Sabbath at the source, <coughs> and uh, uh, we are using uh, the book as a kind of rough rough outline as a as a backdrop to these these topics, uh, and maybe I could have uh, someone from the audience read uh, Genesis two, one to three. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all the work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it. God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Okay, thank you. So we are picking up the story at the end of the creation week. Uh, and, of course, something has happened before, which we will not go into in detail. But we have to go into it just a little bit, because uh, uh, we have been taught when we do a biblical exegesis that you have to have, when you have a text, you will also have a context. So we cannot completely ignore the context. So let's look a little at the context uh, and uh, not do it in, in detail, but I'll just do a little bit of context. So uh, here is one feature of context. Uh, and uh, you walk through the creation account. Uh, then God said, let there be, and there was. And God said, let there be, and it was so. And God said, let, and it was so. <clears throat> then God said, let, and it was so. And God said, let there be, and it was so. And God said, let, so God created. Well, <clears throat> the person who wrote this got tired of his monotony, even though monotony, what sounds like monotony, and monotony to us, uh, is I have been told that in the Hebrew way of thinking, the, the monotony is not actually monotony. It works to make the point better. With us, it really gets us bored and we fall asleep. <laughs> and God said, let, so God created, and God said, let, and it was so. Then God said, let us, and so God created. Now, any, anything there, what shall we call it? There is clearly a pattern here. There is clearly, clearly a sort of, you know, there, there, then God said, he always says something, and then we hear what he said, and then uh, we see the, uh, the result, you know, something happens. <coughs> so 
what should we call this? What, what would you call this? And of course, you have a cheat sheet there, so you know what I have called it, <laughs> but you might want to call it something else. I'm leaving it open for now <coughs> here. Uh, what's the pattern? What's, what, would, what could we call it? Intentionality, okay. Purpose, okay, purpose. You know, <coughs> the, the sort of modest, modest terminology in, in, in you know, uh, it's, uh, circles that deal with questions of origin, of course, is to, to talk about intelligent design. Does it sound like intelligent design? Is that, you know, would you, would you be willing to, to support that notion at the very least, that there is, a, there is design and even intelligent design, and you talked about intentionality here. Now, intelligent design, the notion of intelligent design, has got to be an extremely weak way of, of sort of doing justice to, to uh, the creation story in Genesis, but no, let it, let it be. So there is, a, there is that kind of pattern. Any, any other? Yes? I'd like to the pattern of power too, but because you say you know that something should be, and then it actually happens, so you're able to to execute. So we could we could put that in there too. Any anything else? So there is structure, there is an ordering, and 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 some people who read this account have actually emphasized that the creation account is very much. Uh, uh, an account about ordering, ordering the, the, the world, as it were. Yes, Harvey. In Revelation 4, the book on which we've had some where you created all things, and by your will they were created. We have a description of God's will. Okay, uh, so you go, uh, and, and that's not a bad book. The book of Revelation will resonate with the themes from Genesis very much. And here is in, Gen- in Revelation 4, there is a, an echo of Genesis by, by your will. They, they were created. So, yes, there is, that, that, that's, that's highlighted too. Well, some, you know, the, at least, you know, the text seems to give us that, and, and, and the headline I put just was pattern of intent, but you can, you can uh, put other things in there. You can broaden that, of course, but clearly there seems to be, be someone moving behind the scenes here and someone moving it happen and moving to make things happen and, and actually making it happen. I think while we'll move on, and I just want to do another uh, observation from context here. <coughs> so what about this one? Day one, God saw that light was good. Day two, God saw that it was good. Day three, God saw that it was good. Fourth day, and God saw that it was good. Fifth day, and God saw that it was good. Sixth day, and God saw that it was good. And the sixth day again, God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. So what are you making of this? If we're going to... Is this, is this a pattern? Is this rep- repeating a theme? Does it seem like a theme in the creation story here? That it was good? Yes. It almost seems like an, an interplay where God says, let it be sort of a passive life. Let it happen, spring forth, and then he sees what happens and then says that it's good. 
uh-huh. an interplay in in a text or or in a, or an, or or even an interaction between God and what He has created. Yeah. Let it be, you know, kind of it's a sort of an authoritative thing, but it's sort of like give permission to, and it's almost like there was something there, just the the words of it and how it's portrayed that could then happen. Okay. And as it happened, he passed judgment on. Okay. Okay, he passes judgment on it. Well, that pattern, it, there is... It almost seems like God would look forward to someday the evolution arguments were going to come. God said he wanted to make sure that there wasn't, this wasn't due to chance and that what he did was good. It's interesting he doesn't use the word it was perfect. Or it was you know, the essence of... Uh, Technology. We said it was good. To me, that implies a little bit beyond being perfect. There's a, there's a relationship. There's something else going on here besides just perfection. Okay. Would you like to elaborate on that? Something else going on besides perfection. Well, help us a little more. Well, everything as we know today interacts. We don't live in a vacuum. Everything interacts with everything else. And I have a sense that. As things were created, he saw that it all fit into a wholeness. That it was more than just parts, it was some of the parts were a wholeness. It was better than each part. Okay. All right. And there is a kind of rising rising trajectory here, isn't there? That in the end it is not just good, but it is very good. Well, just just uh, I want to back up a second here on, on the on the uh, let's see, where was it? here? on this one pattern of intent, just to say that this, that first one, uh, the pattern of intent, if you listen to some of the most diehard evolutionists, say Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or some of those people, what will they say? They will say that if you were to do evolution all over again, what, what would the outcome be? If you were to, to roll it back and start all over again, what would the result be? it would be different. It wouldn't be the same. It would be something else. Now, from the pattern of intent, we could say that would not work. The biblical, the biblical story is not inviting that kind, of, that kind of trajectory. See, the biblical story says that what happened was intended. It was meant to be that way and not some other way. So if you roll it back and ask God to do it again, what would he do? You know, he rolled back the tape, you rewound the tape, and God would do it again. It would be the same. It would be, that's sort of, so to, to, the, uh, to that discussion, the discussion between, you know, creation evolution discussion, I think the pattern of intent is a, is a pattern that is not extremely happy to accommodate an evolutionary trajectory of chance. It doesn't really do fit that that paradigm very well. Now to this other one, the next one, because that speaks to a completely different subject. Uh, And some of you said judgment or appraisal or evaluation. God evaluates what he has done. There is a sort of, of, you know, look out and and God takes stock of what has happened and he says it is good. Now what should we do with that? Because there isn't just uh, 
We also read this text in our context. There is a reader's context to, to our text. And the reader context here, if I could do that, would be, could be the, the history of Christianity, where the, where, where the Christian story has not really been all that eager to embrace the material world, creation as it were. And I threw in another slide that isn't in your handout. Here, let's just, uh, let's just uh, uh, do this one. You will find this in, in one of the chapters in the book, in chapter 17. But in the Christian history is in many ways a history where you repudiate and dissociate yourself from the body and the earth. So here is Origen, who I like in, in some for some theological, uh, theological uh, 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 projects, but not for the way he sees the earth. God therefore made the present world and bound the soul to the body as punishment, as a punishment. So what does he think? He thinks that, that, that material reality is a consequence of sin. See, so you are having material reality, you have the earth, you have the body, because of sin. And, and then, uh, of course, uh, uh, as he tries to imagine redemption, he re- imagines redemption then as deliverance from material reality. For if all things can ins- exist without bodies, doubtless bodily substance will cease to exist when there is no use for it. This is an enormous disaffirmation of creation. This cannot be taken as anything other than that. And, and it's old. It's old. It's early. It is really in the, in the matrix within which Christianity will evolve. You see, so there is a Christian disaffirmation of creation right there at the beginning. So we have a modern problem. We have the issue of evolution where there is a, a sort of you know, chance element that is also disaffirming of this world, of us, you know, of, of how we came into existence. But then you have uh, this enormous disaffirmation in, in, in someone like Origen. Uh, the last one here. Thus it appears that even the use of bodies will cease. And if this happens, bodily nature returns to non-existence, just as it formerly, as formerly it did not exist. Amazing. And it's pervasive. And, and where does Origen, where do we find him? Origen, his dates are what? See, we, I've, we've talked about him before here, but his dates are about 184 to 254, 185. One, uh, and, and which city did he live in? So it's early. He's an early Christian thinker who espouses a purely platonic view of reality, a dualist view of reality where the where, where matter is really, really bad, you know, that is unwanted. And Origen lives in Alexandria. And I tell my students that Alexandria is the Boston of, of, of the Hellenistic world. It is the educational capital there. It's where everybody go, goes. If they want a prestigious degree, they go to, to Alexandria and they get it there. You know, at, uh, <coughs> that's the Harvard or the MIT of, 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 of uh, Hellenism. And there is Origen sitting there in this seat of influence and, 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 and talking like that, interpreting the world uh, uh, that way. Isn't that quite, quite amazing? And isn't that something that fits? Uh, we read our text. 
we read our context, and we read our, context, our text and our context from the Bible in a certain sort of received context where, where we are readers and we see how this has been read uh, by others. So any comments on that? So we see then um, a, 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 there is a, yeah, the repudiation uh, there. So let's see. Uh, any, any other uh, comments from you on, on, on this? And uh, this is a quite a big, big ticket item here, isn't it? That needs to be factored in, and that I think uh, I have, I have tried to make the case that this has uh, quite a lot to do with uh, the the disaffirmation of the Sabbath too in early Christianity, because a an, a, a symbol that affirms creation, a symbol that affirms materiality doesn't work well with a theology that wishes to disaffirm it, to sort of abandon, abandon the earth. So we can say then, uh, based on the creation account, that there is nothing bad about the material, uh, material reality. There is nothing bad about the body. And, and this uh, sort of uh, construct of immaterial reality, the soul, and material reality, the body, that seems to be a, a way of thinking that is not shared by uh, Genesis or by the creation account. Okay, now <clears throat> let's go back to our text again. Just uh, run your eyes over it. And then um, here are some uh, <coughs> uh, preliminary apologetic issues. Because <coughs> we all have to do a little apologetics, even though I would wish us to do primarily theological issues and not apologetic issues. But eventually, of course, good theology will be good apologetics. But it should be theology that leads apologetics and not not the other way around. Yes? Well, I was just going to ask you if uh, this feeling that the earth is uh, bad is still part of Christian thought today? Well... I think it is fair to say that it is changing, that the sentiments are changing somewhat. But uh, you, uh, last time I read a quotation from Wendell Berry, who I consider to be a, a very astute observer in our time. And Wendell Berry, he says that the separation of the soul from the body and from the earth, you know, from the material and, and immaterial reality, that perception that continues to run like a geologic fault through the mentality of institutional religion, no matter how secular it, uh, it becomes. So even in secular society, even in contemporary religious uh, sort of experience, there is at least a residue, he says, at least a residue of that separation. That it's, it's kind of, it has become part of our, of our, uh, what should I say, our mental DNA. It's hard to exorcise it because it has been so, so, uh, so pervasive. So I think it is, there, there are elements today in, in uh, philosophical circus, uh, circles, biblical interpretation circles that actually are revisiting this history and actually trying to rewrite it in, in significant ways. I don't know if, if, if Dr. Johnston would, would, would comment on that. I think there are some things on the move. Sad to say, we would think that, that an Adventist community could be a leader and, and, and a significant voice in that kind of discussion. I'm not sure that has happened 
uh, as yet, but, but you know, I think your question is a good one, and what, what the status is, I think some things are, are moving. Uh, yes. I think a very practical aspect of it today is how clearly do the churches speak about sex? That that would be an issue where you sort of get a, yeah. I mean, the whole HIV epidemic, part of my prejudice in discussing the church has been essentially silent. Because it because the body is something that you can't really talk about and, and, and sexuality is something that is sort of fraught with with the negativity is that that it well harvey has experience uh, he has uh, been an, a, a leading a leading uh, a person with the aids epidemic in africa and has also seen that in the adventist community in africa this is a subject that is really off limits it's unacknowledged maybe it's changing now but it hasn't changed much it's unacknowledged because you can't talk about that subject and you cannot uh, admit that you have a problem, that there is a, you know, that we are not uh, necessarily uh, different, that different from, from the rest. I was going to point out that the creation story, God spoke and all the creatures came into being, but when it came to man, he didn't say, let there be a body for Adam and then put the soul in him. It said, he formed him. Maybe I'm simplistic, but I, to me, he took his hands and formed him out of the dust. There's a special sense that this is different, that this isn't a, a burden. It's an it's a integral part of Adam's... Yeah, in the two... In the two versions there, the, the second one in Genesis 2, but even the first one in Genesis 1, there is a kind of sense of suspense. I, that's how I read it. It's sort of, uh, <clears throat> shall we, shall we not, you know, shall we, shall we not let us create human beings in our image? You know, that sort of, you know, that, that you know, should... <laughs> so there is a sort of, there is a, what should I say, there is a little more... Uh, uh, it's more elaborate, you know. It's more, more. There is more, more to it there. I think um, we have to empathize with the dualism to wrestle with it enough. I mean, you can't just caricature, make a caricature of of dualism because um, it has arisen in the minds of great secular thinkers, um, as well as become such a prominent, taken such a prominent role in the church, not because it, it's just silly, but because it's one way of trying to grapple with the terrible liabilities and imperfections and sufferings and everything that comes with the physical world and with the body. And so... It's, it's a compelling way that um, humans have found to try to find an escape from that and a deliverance from that. And um, that not being right is one thing, but um, it, it may be easy for us, not coming from that perspective, to just say, well, isn't that silly that they came to that? Oh, I appreciate your comment very much. I think that's, that's very important to, to, to say that, that it isn't, it isn't silly. It is a serious way of dealing with reality. And, and, you know, way back in philosophy, a serious way. And some of the, some of the 
pe some people that I think are, you know, deserving of a lot of respect in Christian theology today are, are still, still committed to that type of account where, where you basically have an, a, 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 an alternative account all the way from the sort of from ground zero that one will say material reality is good and that is what, what reality is. And there is another view that will, in some ways, uh, dispute that. And, and uh, of course, the most most influential uh, uh, proponent of that is Plato. And Origen is a is a, a diehard uh, Platonist. No, no question about that. He is he is the he carries the ball in his era for that for that view, and certainly in Christianity, you might say. <laughs> he was yes, he was of the of the leading. Middle Platonic philosophers in in uh, in Alexandria in those days there is the non-Christian uh, Plotinus and there is uh, uh, there is Origen who who are sort of uh, a twosome uh, for that for that view. So, well, we need to go on here and do another apologetic concern here. Uh, <coughs> The person who has written on the text, the Sabbath text in Genesis, in the book From Sabbath to Lord's Day, he says that the Sabbath originated in Israel as God's special institution for his people. Now, that is not, you know, how, why does he say that, you know? Well, <laughs> I don't know what his, you know, one should not second guess people's motives, but since they since the project here from Sabbath to Lord's Day would be in some ways to, to give an account that explains in a good way why we sh you should give up on the Sabbath. One of the, uh, one of the things you have to do then is to weaken the creation link, to sort of in some ways get dissociate the Sabbath from creation. And that is basically what he is doing. Now, you cannot really do that based on the text, so what he is doing, what he is assuming, is a certain compositional history of the Old Testament, uh, what is called source criticism. And he thinks that the Sabbath, uh, the, the sources that deal with the Sabbath are younger sources, and that uh, some people think, well, creation theology was added afterwards. <coughs> One of the <coughs> person who holds great prestige, I think, I don't know what it's, Maybe the, uh, Robert Johnston can uh, uh, answer this, but <coughs> at Andrews, I thought uh, what little I knew of what was going on, that Gerhard von Rad was a great Old Testament theologian uh, that in some ways was the leading uh, Old Testament theologian of his generation. And von Rad, he thought that, that the creation story was added. It was an appendix. It was not primary to the biblical account. The primary uh, story in the, in, in the Old Testament is the story of Israel and, and redemption history. So he treats the creation story as, a, as an added thing, as a sort of uh, appendix, you might say. So there are all kinds of, of reasons why, why there has been you know, this, uh, this sort of downgrading of the Sabbath. I think that has changed. And the leading Old Testament theologians today do not do that. They do not follow von Rad. They will say von Rad was wrong. And there has been a, a, a big attempt to, to reset Old Testament theology then. Here is a, 
Jewish theologian Umberto Casuto, Scripture wishes to emphasize that the sanctity of the Sabbath is older than Israel and rests upon all mankind. If you wish to make a, a battle or a stand for the Sabbath, you cannot do that. That stand can never succeed unless you can claim for the Sabbath universality. You cannot have a God who is a God only of a few. I mean, if God is God, he has to be God of everybody. You know, there cannot be a sort of, a, a, a sort of severance or a sort of sequestering there. So this is acknowledged, and in Jewish Sabbath theology, there is no attempt in Jewish Sabbath theology to limit it and say it. this is a Jewish entity. And, and uh, Casuto is not the only voice saying that. Here is John Levinson, uh, who teaches at Harvard. And he is, by, by the way, a, a, a Platonist. He, his view is Platonic. Uh, so, but he has a Jewish tradition too. And Platonism made peace. No, Jewish theology made peace with Platonic thought through Philo, uh, who was also an Alexandrian in, at the time of Jesus and Paul. Anyway, here is John Levinson. The text of the Hebrew Bible in the last analysis forbids us to speak of the, theology, of the theology of creation without sustained attention to the sabbatical institution. You know, I think that's... So what, what is he then uh, saying? If, you have, if the Sabbath belongs to a theology of creation, what then? Well, then you make your case for universality. See, for everything, that it is inclusive, that nothing is lying outside the horizon or the purview of the Sabbath. Can you live with that? <laughs> that it is not Jewish as such. It is what? Human, you know, from the, from the beginning, from the, from the start of the story, or it has a God as its originator. Now, just to throw in these texts that we might deal with in greater detail later. But if one of you would read those texts, these texts here in Genesis 122, 128, and, and Genesis 2, verse 3, uh, could, could we have an audience voice for this? And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and work them, and build the waters and the seas, and the birds multiply on Wait a second there. Hold that a second, and then we'll go to... So God blessed what, or who? This is the first blessing in Scripture. This is the blessing on non-human creation. God's first blessing. Okay, the second one. God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. This is God's second blessing, and it is God's blessing on human creation. And then the third one. Then God blessed and so what is that? It's a blessing on all creation, isn't it? So the blessing on non-human creation, of course, is very conspicuous because non-human creation do not feel, does not feel particularly blessed these days in, in, in so many ways. But here is God doing that. And again, I just wanted to use that text for the concept of in universality and inclusion, that the Sabbath 
is belonging to a framework of universality and a framework of in inclusion. I think we can make that case based on Genesis without, without any, any sort of uh, backing off uh, from that. Okay, <clears throat> now <clears throat> what about this one? Now we're, we're going to do, do sort of put the microscope on our text. <laughs> and and, and what, what is your comment here? I, I think I put a headline here. I can't remember what it was, but <laughs> don't look. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so God finished the work that he had done and he rested or ceased on the seventh day. Uh, God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. So we have two pairs here uh, that are quite similar, two, uh, two sentence pairs. Uh, so what, what would you, what's your comment here? One thing that's missing is that it was there was evening and morning seventh day. <laughs> no, I, mean, I left that out. <laughs> yeah, we should discuss that too. There was evening and, the, and morning. Uh, so we have been a little selective here, but surely that is another another part of the... Is that something you would like to say more about? Well, historically, a lot was made out of that. Uh, the idea, for example, that the Sabbath is, uh, never ended. That that it's left out. That on the sixth on the sixth day, there, there, it doesn't say it was morning. And he, uh, yeah, and so the, when you met, move into the Sabbath, you have a notion of a never ending. Well, that's 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 good. That's uh, that that's uh, worth including. Yeah. Any other thoughts here? Well, what I have put in here, and then you can uh, reflect on that. I put in the the pair of event and intent. Uh, so what's the event? Well, the event is that God finished the work that he had done and he rested. That's the event. The intent is the second pair. God blessed and hallowed. That, that there is a kind of... You see what I'm trying to, to say there? I don't see any... Uh, oh, that was nice. <laughs> that was kind of ho-hum, you know. <laughs> What is it? The first sentence re, uh, states, of course, the other one, uh, this sentence is also saying something that belongs to the category of event. But it, there is a kind of, what did it mean to God? What does God make of it? That's what I'm trying to, to bring into there. What does God make of it? Well, he magnifies it. He, he, sort, of, he sort of makes it loom large. This is big, you know. God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. And how do you do that? How does God do that? You know, what sort of, what sort of, uh, 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 you know, what kind of, of, of setup would you do? How does, how did God do that? You know, how did he, uh, what was the ceremony? What was the, uh, you know, I'm just trying to imagine that this was, uh, that this was marked, uh, uh, and 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 God here is trying to editorialize on the sig significance of what He has done, event and intent. Uh, is uh, you, we can find some better ways to say that, but uh, yes, that's what I uh, what I kind of see here in the in the sort of in the sort of ceasing here that God. Uh, if you let's see here, if I can can uh, in the sort of that God ceased. There is a sort of movement of arrival. And what happens at the point of arrival 
I mean, how does the point of arrival define uh, uh, what happened before and what happens beyond the point of arrival? What I'm, uh, what I would wish to suggest there is that that the Sabbath is not just a sort of retrospective. What we have done here is important. Uh, the Sabbath is also signaling that what will happen from here on is important in a sense, that God is, you know, when you have come to the point of arrival, let's say some of us who travel back and forth across the ocean uh, to go back to our home country, uh, what happens is not the trip. What happens is what, ha- what is great is the point of arrival. When you meet uh, the loved ones, you come there and you have your reunion and it's, yeah, picture yourself at LAX at the in the arrival hall there, and see this is you know see the joy of people who hug each other and uh, they shout there they are you know that's the kind of scene that you have in the Sabbath. Karl Barth he says, why does God cease to stop creating? Why does he you know this is it? He says uh, because he has found the object of his love and there is no further wor- need for works. You know that God has come to something that this was what he was up to. And yes, human creation is important, not just non-human creation. But you see you see that. You, one needs to have a little imagination here and, 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 and sort of dignify these texts with, with that, uh, uh, that kind of, of joy. Now, uh, yeah, uh, well, here is the next one and going, going on here. Uh, so, <clears throat> This text, just to uh, take a, a lesson from this text, God finished the work that he had done. And Shaki Lul, who I think has written great things on many topics, even though he was not uh, a, primarily a theologian, he was a sociologist, uh, but he has written a, a, quite an amazing chapter on the Sabbath in his book, What I Believe. Uh, he has also written, I think, wonderful things about the book of Revelation that I have shared with, with this class earlier because I think he's one of the most perceptive readers of, 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 of Revelation. But this is what he makes of, of that sentence. A cause cannot cease to be a cause without ceasing to be. It must produce its effects to infinity. God is not a cause, for we are told that he decides to rest, that you start doing something. And you can stop it. And you can stop it because you are what? You can stop it because you are a person. You are not an impersonal force. You're not just, you know, the impersonal force must go on till it has spent itself. But the person can let something happen until that goal has been reached. So the Sabbath speaks of personhood and God's personhood is in some ways best uh, best signified by the fact that God can stop it that he can say you know you finish it this is it no more you, you see that point I think he makes I think it's a valid point uh, and, 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 and a point that is underemphasized because we also even in Seventh-day Adventist uh, creation theology it is the causal aspect that is often uh, emphasized at the expense of other things. And who knows what we will be doing with, with our Sabbath theology in the years to come, because it seems to me that, that there is an, an, a, a, an eagerness to, 
to to emphasize uh, things other than what might be the most most important uh, aspect. I'm proposing then that uh, along with that, uh, with the personhood part, that you also have the notion of presence, of divine presence and divine participation. Look at the, the uh, Terence Fredheim is a Lutheran Old Testament theologian. He says, by resting on the seventh day, God is thereby shown to have entered into the time of the created order. Does that sound like God is present with creation? And Jürgen Moltmann, he is probably the leading theologian of his generation. You have to distinguish, by the way, between biblical scholars. Terence Fretheim is basically a biblical scholar who interprets biblical texts. And theologians, they look at biblical texts with, uh, you know, that was interesting. But they are not dependent on biblical texts for theology only. They they go all over the place. But Jürgen Moltmann, who is German, and he's a very old man now, he writes in his book, God in Creation, that God adopts the community of creation as his own milieu. You know, that, does it sound like God is, you know, that they acknowledge, they read the text in Genesis, and they acknowledge that God is present in creation, that God is a participant in what he has created? Does that sound, isn't that what they acknowledge? They acknowledge that. Now, here is somebody who doesn't acknowledge it. (coughs) I was quite surprised, and some of you have, I mentioned it to some of you before, but Ben Witherington, he is a a New Testament uh, 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 biblical scholar at Asbury Theological Seminary. And he has written an extended uh, critique of my book, of of this book, uh, The Lost Meaning of the Seventh Day. And I was made aware of it uh, earlier this year, but then I didn't think much about it. I thought, well, maybe he's just commenting on it. But then I, I, somebody else uh, sent me an email and said, have you seen that Ben Witherington has written a seven-part extended review of the book on his blog? He's a very influential blogger, too, in evangelical circles. He has written 40 books. He's a, quite, a, quite an influential voice in, 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 in New Testament interpretation. <clears throat> so this is his comment in, in, on his blog. What Genesis 2.1.3 says is God ceased from creating. In other words, the seventh day is when he was not actively involved in doing some creative work in his material creation. The text suggests something more like God was sitting back and enjoying what he had just accomplished and seeing that it was good. The seventh day itself is not the capstone of creation. The absence of divine creative activity is not the same thing as divine presence. It's his comment. And then he, he, he's a little condescending. And so he says that I have over-egged the pudding, you know, that I have over-interpreted the text. I put too many eggs in the pudding. And what is my response to him? I have responded. I have written to him just under, under the radar, you know, not, not in the public square. Well, what, what will I say to him? I will say to him that he forgets to put eggs in his pudding. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> the, <coughs> that he is under-egging his pudding because, because the text 
does allow for the kind of inferences. And good interpreters, as good as I am, as good as he is, have granted that. Or people who really have no agenda, which I do, of course, because you can always, you could always fault me for having an apologetic agenda. But you see what I'm, what I'm, what he's saying. He is basically giving an almost like a deist deist kind of view of creation. What does God do? I wrote to him. You sound like a deist. I said, but you don't, I don't think you are. <laughs> what is a deist? A deist who has a, is a God who creates and then he walks away. Then he disengages. But the Sabbath is what? The Sabbath is proof that God does not disengage. That God is part of creation. That is, that is the, and the divine rest it's not just a report that now God did not do anything more. You know, I think there is strong warrant for these people, for the view of these people who say that it is presence and it is participation that God is God is committing to creation. You see that, and of course that. So the notion of uh, so that that I would I, I would find that to be be an, a, a, a weak argument on on his part, Harvey. In blessing the day, it seems to me that anyone in the future who participates in the Sabbath is participating with God. I don't think that can be avoided. And where I'm going with that is to say, other than, you know, the first six days, you could say God made toys and put them in his cabinet for us all to see. The seventh day said no. God jumped into the cabinet with his toys. And his toys became real and participated with... It's not just God participating in creation. It is us participating with God and God being part of our life. Well, but at, at the very least, we can see that God inhabits the Sabbath. You know, that there is a, in that space, as it were, God is, is conspicuous in, 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 in the space or in the time of the, of, of the Sabbath. So, but I just thought, you, you know, we'd have to, to have uh, some uh, interaction here with others. <coughs> now, <coughs> we discussed this in the School of Religion the other day, and I don't think I'll take time to read this t- these texts, but this is wisdom talking in the book of Proverbs and basically walking through. Uh, this was Carla Gober who brought this up, and I thought this is an excellent, excellent point. Is God participating? Is he interactively involved with creation? You know, is there awareness? Is that in, do you find that in scripture, or are we over-egging the pudding, you know, when we say it's, it's there? And in wisdom, it is there, for sure. Uh, let's just skip the first, uh, uh, in Proverbs 8, 22 to 26, and then, uh, you you can see how this is so, in some ways is a walk through of the story of creation before there was this before there was that there was mountains before there was boundaries and so on uh, and and then going on here in proverbs eight twenty seven to thirty one when he established the heavens I was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep when he made firm the skies above you here echoes of creation here when he established the fountains of the deep when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth <clears throat> then i was beside him like a master worker and i was daily his delight rejoicing before him always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race 
you know, this is, this is strongly interactive, isn't it? And participatory. And of course, this is a text that has been used where wisdom is sort of a, sort of a cipher or a substitute for, for Jesus. You know, there, this is a, this is a sort of a, a, a text that was drawn, drawn upon by the New Testament to see, see a, at least a, a, if not a Trinitarian, then a binitarian, a sort of two God, God's idea there. And, and some Jewish uh, scholars have, have made a lot of that in a very, very nice, nice way. Yeah, I saw, was there a hand there? Yes. Well, you attribute this to Jesus. But put this together with Psalms when it talks about, you created me before I was the mother's womb. You know, from, e- from eternity, you have decided, you have determined the daily whatever happens in human lives. I mean, God was not, um, even in creation or in eternity past, unaware of every one of us here, is what I'm wanting to say. Does this make sense? Well, it makes sense. It is a point of view, because some people will say, well, he wasn't, you know, so, but, but, you know, you can make uh, there are there is plenty of, of of Bible verses that might will you know would support that kind of kind of uh, what should I say omniscience or foreknowledge on the part of God uh, that has been a contentious issue or at least an issue that has been discussed somewhat within the Loma Linda community. We're not going to take it there. Let's, let's just go a, a couple of uh, other things here before we our time is up. Um, here is what a person says about blessing. Uh, he's a, he has written, a, Skinner has written a commentary on Genesis. A blessing is the utterance of a good wish. Applied to things, it means their endowment with permanently beneficial qualities. The Sabbath is a constant source of well-being to the man who recognizes its true nature and purpose. Can you support that? Is that supported from the text? So the Sabbath is a gift and a blessing. Does it complicate life? Does it enhance life? Does it improve? Is it a negative? Is the Sabbath in the Genesis account sort of saddled with negatives? There is no negative. There's nothing negative here. It is celebratory. It's utterly positive. It is really charged with, you know, 100% undiluted uh, positivity, as it were. Can't we see that? So why should it be so difficult to make this case? Why, why, what what happened, you know, to to sort of deprive the Sabbath of that kind of aura, that kind of reputation? Okay, this one. God rested. Here the emphasis is on the acting subject. Who rested on the creation Sabbath? God rested. God finished the work God had done, and God ceased, and God blessed, and God hallowed. So who is the acting subject here? Pervasively, exclusively. God. So who is the sort of main character as you know when the Sabbath makes makes its entry? Who is the main character? Who catches the eye? In the first Sabbath, or what is it that catches the eye? I mean, well, it isn't you, it isn't me, 
you know, it isn't the human person that, that catches the eye, it is God. Can, can we see that? It is, so the Sabbath is, a, you know, is, is the Sabbath theocentric or anthropocentric? <laughs> well, you can make the other case too. Of course, the Sabbath is for benefits of human beings, but it is something, you know, that God is prominently the subject of the Sabbath here in, in the creation story, right? With that theocentric God perspective in the hallowed, um, I was thinking, you know, I mean, we we often think of God making the Sabbath holy in terms of it being holy for us, um, but it's just God here in this context, and what does it mean? For him to bless it, it sounds like, okay, you know, I give this a blessing, but what does it mean for him to hallow it? And I, I thought of um, the words of Lincoln, you know, at Gettysburg, we cannot hollow this ground, but the men who have died here have hollowed it. Yeah. And when we hollow something, it means we hold it very dear, we, in, in, you know, we, we, we give it meaning to us, you know, a deep meaning. And so I don't know if that's what it means, but that's kind of how it comes across to me. As, <coughs> well, it's so, sort of... You know, if you if you sort of take it into into the history of the Sabbath, the, the issue then would be, you know, is the Sabbath primarily about something we do, or is it primarily about something God does? And you know, what, what comes first? Well, it must be primarily about something God does. You know, and and what we do must be secondary. So there is a recognition, like Lincoln, we cannot, you know, s- s- uh, consecrate. We cannot hallow. You know, but what can you do? Well, you can give the Gettysburg Address. You know, you can do something like that in response to the Sabbath too, you know, to something that has been done. Let's look at that. Witherington here, uh, my critique, my, I I, I think something in his criticism is quite friendly. He is extremely positive on what I have done in my chapter on the book of Revelation. I have persuaded him more than I have persuaded Adventist scholars in my theology of Revelation. And that is, of course, an amazing, amazing boon. I'm very happy for that. (laughs) Witherington says, Were Adam and Eve, before the fall, given a commandment to keep the Sabbath holy? Nope. (laughs) I thought that was very condescending. (laughs) Nope. Now, do I say in my chapter on, on Genesis that they were given a commandment to keep the Sabbath? Nope. <laughs> I don't. That is exactly the point. That is exactly the point. There is no commandment to keep the Sabbath. But what is there? Well, there is a narrative. There is a story that God kept the Sabbath, that God rested, that God hallowed. There is a story about what God did. Now, so what would what does he make you what 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 does he make you think he makes you think that unless there is a commandment to do something you will not do it you know well if there had been a commandment we would have done it so you will not feel obligated you will feel obligated by the commandment but you will not feel obligated by the the example the narrative and god wants you to Live according to commandments or according to examples. And, you know, so the Sabbath, of course, is actualized in God. 
in some ways, and uh, uh, no, not needing the commandment. So, <coughs> so his his crit- criticism there is in some ways a boomeranging back. It's a it's a it's a failure to appreciate how the Sabbath wishes to be introduced, and the character of the Sabbath uh, is not primarily as an imperative, but in in a sort of narratival narratival structure. Yes. But it is important for us to acknowledge that there is no commandment. And that should not be something that we should feel threatens the Sabbath. Quite the contrary. It's something that really uh, helps us see the character of the Sabbath from the beginning. Now, I think the Adventist theology has erroneously anchored our Sabbath emphasis in commandment, in law. And 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 the, that is not how it comes here in 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 Genesis. So, I'll read through these first these last ones, and and our time is up. Uh, so there is a tension here between indicative and in imperative, and <clears throat> let's let the indicative win the mere report of what happened. The Sabbath is not an institution which exists or ceases to exist. Which, with its observance by man, the divine rest is a fact as much as the divine work, and so the sanctity of the day is a fact whether man secures the benefit or not. The first Sabbath is cosmic, only hinting at what its significance will be for ma- to man. These are statements, I think, that have merit. And then <coughs> Pinkas Khan talks about, you know, what about the Sabbath with respect to present human reality. Empirically speaking, however, life after Eden and to this day is frequently not very good, and at times it is not even good. On the contrary, life can be replete with suffering and subjugation. So now does the Sabbath speak to present reality? Does the Sabbath speak primarily about the past, or does it speak about the present, or does it even speak about the future? Is there something there? And here is my contention about the orientation of the Sabbath, and this is something my, my Ben Witherington did not like very much, but I'm going to fight for that, <coughs> that uh, view. If the orientation of the seventh day from the beginning oscillates between memory and hope, between the reality of paradise lost and the prospect of paradise regained, the oscillation of hope, of promise, is stronger than the oscillation of memory. You hear what I'm trying to say there? I'm trying to say that the Sabbath is not just looking back to what was, that the Sabbath was meant to be, and is really promise, that the the sort of oscillations, back and forth oscillation, memory, promise, that the oscillation of promise is the strongest oscillation. That's where the Sabbath is oriented, toward promise, toward making right what was wrong, you see. Anyway, let's continue next Sabbath. (laughs) Time is up. Thank you.